Well, hello to all those who are here. So it's so I had to like constantly restrain my hug impulse this morning. It's just so like exciting to to see you guys here in the flesh. So it's it's wonderful. Hello also to um, to those of you who are home, and I hope that you are. Um, that you are gathered with your Bible and with uh, whoever's in your household and you're ready to uh, come before the Word of God with all of us together. Even though you're not here, we are together uh, in spirit in a very uh, profound sense of that. So welcome to all of you as well. So wherever you are, however you're joining us, please open your Bibles if you've got them or pull them up on your phone to um, uh, John chapter 13. We're going to be starting at verse 18, kind of the middle of this chapter right here, and we're going to end at verse 30 today. And, and what we're going to see here in this really vivid scene in the gospel of John is a scene of betrayal. That's what, that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at the departure of Judas Iscariot from the band of 12 disciples the initiation of his betrayal of Jesus. This, this is not the most um, violent scene in the Gospel of John. It's not the most uh, overtly contentious. You know, we've got all like the shouting matches in chapter 8 and all that stuff. A lot of tension in the Gospel. But I think you can make a case that this scene right here, out of all those scenes in the Gospel of John, may be the most disturbing in the entire story. The most chilling little vignette we have in this story that John's been telling from the beginning. And that's because there's, there's something that's just uh, fundamentally disturbing about betrayal. It's something about it that is just unsettling to us as human beings who, who so value and we're made for relationships. Even, even our kids pick up on this at a young age. I know there's a lot of kids out here um, today, which is awesome. Love having you guys and seeing you out there. I was watching the movie Frozen with my son Moses a couple months ago. And when we got to that part where it turns out that Prince Hans, you guys know who I'm talking about, where he looks like he's a nice guy the whole time, but then he actually turns out to be a really bad guy. You find that out like two thirds of the way through the movie. But at that point, we had to turn it off in our house. It was just so uh, unsettling uh, for, my, for my son Moses, that this guy, he looked, you know, he looked so nice and handsome all along, and he's, he's really evil. And he's, it, we rarely have to do this, like, like with kids' movies. You know, if there's you know, a big, scary monster, he, Moses just thinks that's so cool. Or if there's you know, a sword fight or like a carriage chase down the edge of, of a volcano or something like that, all, the more the better, right? But, but betrayal? Someone who is, for you know, all, everything it looks like, they're your friend, they're for you, but it turns out that they are against you. You know, that's unsettling for my son to the point that he just, I mean, he couldn't watch it anymore. What about you? You know, have, have you felt this um, pain of betrayal personally? I know that for many of you, this is not just an, an abstract concept. And I think really for, for all of us, anyone who's been in relationships for any extent of time, to varying degrees, you know, betrayal isn't just something that we know in theory. It's something that we know personally. It's, it's, it's happened to us, perhaps. Maybe you've been betrayed by, by a friend uh, or, or a family member or a co-worker. 
You've, you've felt kind of that shock of realization when you first find out what, what has really been going on for a long time, but, but, but you didn't see it. And then you have this, this horror of just uh, kind of seeing this person unmasked for the very first time. And then you can deal with that ongoing destabilizing effect that can have on all your relationships where you struggle to really trust people again or really put yourself out there again because, again, that wound of betrayal is, is, is so deep. Betrayal, I, I would say, is one of the most bitter of, of human experiences. And today what we see is that Jesus, the, the quintessential human, it, he is not exempt from this most bitter of human experiences. Christ is betrayed. And it's horrifying. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. So why would we, why would we want to look at it? What value is there for us today in this, this story to really spend the next 45 minutes looking at it? Why was it so important for John to include it right here? Well, I should say that the way that this story is written and the way that John tells this story shows us that it is very, very important to him. That he saw what happens here in this upper room right here is highly significant. This is one of the most uh, vivid, detailed scenes that we have in the entire gospel. You know, when things slow down in a story, like uh, when the writer starts to mention, you know, specific names and times and even gestures, this, this is a cue to you as a reader that something important is going on right here. It's like in a, in a movie when it cuts to, to slow motion, you know, to show an arrow in flight, okay? Or, or like uh, when, it, when the camera zooms in on some object, in a crime scene. It's the director's way of saying, you need to take notice of this. This is, this is important, what, what's happening right here. And John is doing that with the way that he writes our scene right here. He is slowing the narrative down. He is zooming in on the details. He's drawing our attention to what happens in this upper room. This, this section, it almost reads like a modern novel when you read it. The, so vivid are the details. And that's because, of course, this was a firsthand event for John. He was there. He was in this upper room. He was at the table with, with the disciples and with Jesus when all this happens. This scene is, is the first, part, first time in the gospel, actually, when John, the writer, explicitly writes himself into the story. You know, he was there for everything that's been going on all along, but so far he hasn't, he hasn't focused on himself. He hasn't mentioned himself, but here he shows up. The disciple whom Jesus loved, he gives himself words to speak, and he has to. He can't tell this story without putting himself in it, and you're going to see that as we go on um, through this scene. But notice that this is not just, you know, betrayal in the abstract for John, or betrayal in theory. This is betrayal personally for John, too, the betrayal of the Lord that he loved, his teacher, his friend. This scene matters to John personally, and it should for us for the same reasons. But there's also some literary purposes to this scene as well. Some things that John hopes this scene does in the story that he's telling, some functions that he intends it to have. There's four things that you've got listed in your handout there. If you grabbed one on your way in or those at home, if you were able to um, uh, download it, I think it's available on the church website, so you could go um, download it now if you want to. Uh, but what, what's listed there are four different ways that this particular scene functions to accomplish John's overall purpose in writing this gospel. And his purpose, of course, we've, we've kind of hammered this a lot throughout this series, is John wants to show us Jesus as he truly is 
and invite us to put our faith in him, to put our trust in him, our, to give him our, our full allegiance. And what John does in this scene is he helps us to do that. He shows us who Jesus is. He gives us reasons to put our faith in him. So we're going to be looking at those four ways this scene functions um, as we go through this. Because yes, betrayal is a very dark subject. This, this scene is, is very dark uh, in general, one that you just can't read without feeling just a, a heaviness of heart. I was feeling it all week as I was thinking about this and what's going on in the life of Judas and, and, and meditating just on the, the, the sorrow of all this. It's dark. But it's against that backdrop of darkness that the light of Christ shines all the brighter. And I hope by the end we get just a glimpse of that glorious light today. So let's look together. Function number one of this scene, the first thing that, thing that John wants to have this scene show and do for us as readers is to show us the cleansing of the community. Verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you, Jesus says, continuing a quote he had begun earlier in this paragraph, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So obviously we're starting mid-quote here. We've, we've kind of got to have a little bit of context for this scene. What exactly is going on? It's, it's Thursday of Passover week, and Jesus and his disciples are gathered in the, uh, the infamous upper room of a home in Jerusalem. Now there's, there's a whole long story of how Jesus got access uh, to this upper room that the other gospels tell, that John doesn't even go into any of those details here. He just kind of puts us there. He simply says, back at the, the start of the, the, the chapter, that it's Passover week, and Passover, of course, being this great uh, Jewish festival where, where they would celebrate, um, uh, the Israelites would celebrate their redemption as slaves from Egypt when God set them free, really kind of their birth of their nation. You could think of this as, as a Fourth of July festival, a lot of the same sort of things. The beginning of our nation is what we associate with the Fourth of July and freedom. Both of those were huge themes in, in the Passover celebration. Uh, of the Jews. So Jesus and his disciples, they have gathered to celebrate that event together with the customary meal. All, all around Jerusalem, people are doing the same thing. The Jews are all, you know, gathering in their various homes. They're inviting strangers to, to join them. They're, they're, they're gathering to eat this meal. That is where the normalness of this scene ends uh, for Jesus and his disciples. Because uh, as John tells it in the, in the passage that Bruce taught on last week, in the middle of the dinner, Jesus, who's playing the part of host, he gets up and then he gets down to wash the disciples' feet, which is just a, a shocking, uh, unprecedented act of humility on his part, very much against the cultural expectations of his day. If you missed Bruce's sermon from last week, it's on our website, it's on our YouTube page, you can get the podcast. I mean, definitely listen to that. It was just a beautiful... Um, personal exposition of, of what it means for us to be a church together. And I think really important for everyone who's a, a part of FBC to listen to. So if you haven't listened to it, please go back and listen to that. But it's just, uh, it, it's, it's beautiful. And it's also the, really the foundation of what continues on in our chapter today. Because as, as Bruce pointed out last week, this, you know, this act of washing the disciples' feet, it wasn't just an act of humility and instruction, though it was that. Jesus says, you know, imitate me in doing this. This is how you are to treat others. It also served a foreshadowing sort of function of cleansing his disciples for mission. He's, he's washing them. Symbolically, what is, Jesus is doing is he is purifying and preparing his disciples for the work of mission that's ahead of them. 
And really what Jesus is doing is he's looking forward to what he's about to do for them the very next day on the cross where he offers them permanent purification, comprehensive cleansing through the shedding of his blood. And this theme of cleansing then continues on in our passage today. Jesus has already cleansed the disciples' feet. Now he is going to cleanse their community, the 12 of them. Not all of you are clean, Jesus said. Ominously, really, in verse 11 of, of last passage. Kind of that, that is the dark note in what is a beautiful scene in last week's passage. And he's, Jesus said this right here because he knew who was going to betray him. This is also what Jesus is getting at at the beginning of our passage today when he says, I am not speaking of all of you. That speaking refers to the blessing that he had just given in, in verse 17, where he says, if you know these things, blessed are you who does them. Then he immediately adds the caveat, I'm not speaking of all of you. And that's because Jesus knows that there is a traitor in their midst, an unclean brother who, even though Judas had his feet washed, his heart is still dark and, and filthy with sin. Like Bruce said last week, I mean, we see right here that rituals and rites, they, on their own, they are not enough to, to, to make you clean, to make anyone clean. What matters is your heart. And according to Jesus, the heart of Judas has been poisoned. If this cadre of men is going to be ready for the work of, of mission that is, that is before them, this work of, of carrying on the message and, the, and the, the ministry of Jesus that's so important, then they need to be, as a community, cleansed. They need to be, as a community, purified. The unclean brother among them needs to be exposed. He needs to be expelled. And that cleansing of the community is what we see right here in this scene with the departure of Jesus. There's a big shift that happens right after this, literarily speaking. Like if you were to go look up outlines of John, you would see right after verse 30, there's a huge major break in the narrative. John leaves, and in the very next, or excuse me, Judas leaves, and in the very next sentence, Jesus starts this huge section, which is known as the farewell discourse, really his, uh, his final speech to the, to the, the, the disciples, this beautiful and, and rich, comforting series of promises and assurances and exhortations, a big, long prayer for the well-being of his followers. I love it. I mean, I cannot wait uh, for us to go through this the next several weeks as a church. I think it's really what we need to hear right now. In our, in our present cultural moment and as a scattered church where some of us are here, some are at home, we haven't seen each other for a long time. These words from Jesus are precious and beautiful. I cannot wait to get there for all of us. But before this final pep talk, before really this commencement address that, that Jesus gives to his disciples, the community needs to be purified. And that purification is what John shows us right here in this scene. So that's function number one of the scene before us. It's the cleansing of the community. Function number two is to serve as an explanation for his readers and also for all of us is what could be a troubling question, which is, if Jesus really was the Messiah, why did one of his closest followers betray him? Have you thought about that before? This was a legitimate question for this, um, you know, the intended audience of John's gospel, the, the people he had first in mind when he first uh, wrote it down were what we call dias diaspora Jews, okay, which would basically mean Jewish people who, for various reasons, had been scattered all throughout uh, the Roman Empire. So they're living in Greece, they're living in Rome, they're living 
all throughout the Mediterranean region. These would be people who probably had heard about the Jesus movement at this point. This is several decades after Jesus had been um, crucified, raised from the dead. But they probably would have still, you know, some unanswered questions that, that could be barriers to them putting their faith and giving Jesus their allegiance. Like, they could be thinking, if Jesus really was the Messiah, then why didn't he conquer the Romans? Kick them out of Jerusalem like a conquering king. Why didn't that happen? If Jesus really is the Messiah, why haven't all the old promises come true yet? These things that we read in the Old uh, Testament about worldwide, you know, fame and wealth for Israel, people coming from all nations to worship God, all, all of this stuff. If Jesus really is the Messiah, then why did uh, the vast majority of pe Jewish people in his day reject him and really call for his crucifixion, as we're going to see? And then coupled with that question, this one right here, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then why did Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, one of the most trusted of Jesus's associates, the, the keeper of their money box, right? He's their group uh, treasurer and eyewitness to, to every miracle and every word from the mouth of Jesus. Why did Judas reject Jesus? If he couldn't buy the message, why should I? Well, John answers that question right here in this scene. Look at verse 18 again and following. I am not speaking of all of you, Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, that is, I am the Messiah. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So first thing to notice right here is that Jesus is not by any means caught off guard by this betrayal from Judas Iscariot. I know whom I have chosen, he says, meaning he knows what's going on inside of each of these 12 men that he chose to be his disciples, including Judas. He knew this all the way back when he called Judas to be his disciple. In fact, this choice, you know, Jesus did not make this choice in ignorance. Okay, it's not like one bad applicant was able to sneak his way through with 11 really good applicants. Really, what we see when we look at the Gospels is they were all pretty bad applicants, right? <laughs> like, Jesus did not uh, try to choose the best and brightest of his day. He took these very raw, unformed men and through the power of his spirit transformed them. That should be a lot of hope for all of us as well. Praise God. But what Jesus is saying is he, he knows what is going on in their heart, their, their allegiance all the time. He knew what was in a man is what we read back in chapter two of John, that Jesus can see within people in this very powerful, special way that only God can. So then the question becomes, why on earth would Jesus choose someone that he knew would betray him? Jesus explains that next. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So this is a Psalm of David that, that Jesus is quoting right here. Psalm 41, this is when David is, um, he's lamenting the fact that his enemies have surrounded him, that even one of his close friends has, has betrayed him. The Greek text actually includes this word right after the word but there. It includes a word that means in order that or, or, or so that the scripture will be fulfilled. So it's, you know, but in order that the scripture will be fulfilled, then he quotes this here. So what that is indicating is Jesus chose Judas intentionally, knowing that he betrayed him because of this scripture right here. 
because he knew that it was in line with the sovereign plan of God as, as foreshadowed in this ancient prophecy that the one who ate bread with the Messiah might then lift up his heel against him. It's powerful imagery in that, that verse, that eating um, bread with, uh, it emphasizes the closeness of, of this relationship. Eating with someone was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. Hospitality and the trust uh, that goes along with that implied a lot. So when he was eating his bread with him uh, and then lifting up the heel, that's a metaphor for aggression. You know, kind of like maybe you would lift up your heel right before you kick somebody or, you know, uh, lifting up your heel um, being a sign of derision and of, of shaming uh, uh, someone else. It, it, this is just a betrayal that's prophesied here. Very close, a, a real betrayal. Someone you're close with, someone you shared your table with, then turning on you and becoming an aggressor. This is why Jesus, Jesus chose Judas right here. It was foretold in Scripture. This was part of God's plan all along. And all along we see that Jesus humbly submits to the sovereign plan of God. Nothing in his ministry, nothing in his life is by chance or by whimsy. It is all part of God's providential plan. This is all also why Jesus foretells this betrayal so often in, in John's gospel. All the way back in, you know, in chapter 6, more than a year before the events in this dinner right here, Jesus says, Did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. John explains, he spoke of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now the disciples didn't get this here. You see this all along. They still don't even get it when Judas leaves in this scene. But Jesus said it clearly. And in hindsight, they could see, wow, he was warning us about this all along. One of the main purposes of our scene today is to show us that this betrayal of Jesus did not catch him off guard. It was part of his plan because all along, Jesus knows that he has come to go to the cross. In fact, as we read next, what Jesus says here is that uh, this fact that Jesus predicted his own betrayal shouldn't be a barrier to belief. It should be a springboard to belief. Verse 19, I am telling you this now before it takes place, it being uh, the betrayal, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So Jesus knew that this betrayal event would be a, a, a barrier to belief. He, he, he knew that it would be, you know, troubling for those who heard about it, both his disciples that when it happens, and then those who heard about it afterward. This is why he spoke about it beforehand. This is why we have this whole detailed scene before us where Jesus explicitly predicts his own betrayal, betrayal even identifies his own betrayer, sends Judas on his way, so that afterwards, when, you know, the betrayal proper has taken place, then his disciples can look back and know that, yes, Jesus is who he said he was, and so can all of us. He knew this was coming. Jesus planned on it. The betrayal should bolster our belief. And then Jesus concludes this statement with, with an invitation and a blessing. He says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Basically, Jesus is saying, believe that, that I am he, that I am uh, the Messiah, as I said in the previous verse, and by accepting me, know that you are accepting God. There's again, just this, this ultra close identification between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. 
that we see throughout the gospel of John. And look at the emphasis on the word receive in this verse. Receive, 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 receive. It's, it's this active word. It's a welcoming word. It's, it's embracing who Jesus is and, and gladly, you know, appropriating what, what Jesus is, is trying to give to you. It's a synonym for faith, really, in John's gospel, for belief, this receiving. And this act of receiving, it is just the antithesis of betrayal. The word uh, for betrayal that shows up in the very next um, verse literally means to, to hand over or, or, or to give away. That's how it's used many other times in other contexts in the Bible, just to hand over. And really that, that handing over, that betraying, it's the opposite of receiving Jesus. It's the opposite of embracing Jesus. It's just this ultimate act of, of pushing him away. It's like he's right there in your hands, but you hand him over. And if there's a blessing for those who receive him, there's a terrible fate for those who reject him. And that is what we see in this next scene. Purpose number three, a warning. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Can you imagine the feeling in that room when Jesus said these words right here? You know, up till now, the, the disciples might have thought, you know, Jesus is speaking in some sort of abstract sense when he's talking about betrayal and quoting Psalm 41 right now, maybe about some, you know, adversary outside the circle of these 12, these, um, these Jewish leaders that have been trying to, like, stone him and arrest him for the last you know, however many chapters, and they're like, yeah, 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 you're going to get away, Jesus. You always get away. You always slip away from the crowds. We've seen this story many times played out. But then he says this, one of you, Jesus testifies this, one of you, testify there being a very formal, a, a courtroom word of a, of a witness bearing testimony. Then that's also followed by the very formal, truly, truly, just get all their attention, all the eyes on him. One of you will betray me. I mean, imagine the silence in the room after Jesus uh, drops that bomb. You know, the laughter and the conversation around the table just all suddenly dying down as they realize what their rabbi and their master has just said. And then they see his expression. You know, he's troubled in spirit. The, the anguish of his heart is written all over Jesus's face. This moment, it's obviously burned in John's mind. So vividly does he recall what comes next. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, again, this would be John, the writer of the gospel, right here in the story, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? So to really picture the scene that's going on here, I want you all to kind of shut your eyes and get Da Vinci's painting out of your mind, okay? 
It's not what it looked like, right? You know, the Last Supper where they're all lined up in chairs at this big table, kind of sitting like, you know, the wedding party at a head table at a wedding reception or something. That's, that is not the mood of, of this dinner at all. Probably looked a lot more like this, okay? I actually spent most of the week doing this uh, oil painting here, so I hope that you appreciate the effort I put into that. No, I'm, of course I'm kidding. Uh, they were reclining at the table, as John puts it. Which this is how special meals were, were celebrated at this time. Normal meals, like if they're just, you know having a normal lunch or dinner, they would sit at chairs um, at at a table. But for ceremonial meals, the custom was to recline, basically lying on their sides um, with their hands on their uh, laying on a cushion on their left elbow, so that they could eat with their right hand, which was the only hand proper to eat with. Um, at the time. So I, I see Brent Fazio's here. You'd be having a rough time at this last. He'd be the disciple who's like spilling the bowl and stuff, but it's okay. Jesus would still love you and wouldn't send you out. But, but so this is what it, it looked like right here. So John being at Jesus's right. So they're both, you know, on their left elbows. He's at Jesus's right to talk to Jesus. And the text is very clear and vivid at this point. It says that he had to lean back so that his head was resting on Jesus's bosom is how like the, the KJV says it. But it's a very, you know, like he's, his head is leaning against his chest. Again, just showing uh, the closeness and the, the intimacy of the disciples at this scene. And he asks, who is it? Who is it? Jesus has just said that one of the 12 is going to betray him. A, a chilling, disturbing statement. So disturbing that not even, you know, uh, pugnacious Peter doesn't even want to ask about it. He just kind of gives John like, one of these, like, you ask him. You're right next to him. You can ask him just kind of discreetly and quietly who this is, you know. And he does. He says what all of them are thinking. Who? Which, which one? Verse 26. Jesus answered quietly, we assume, because it seems like no one else hears this. Later on in this narrative, he says to John, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. This act, this morsel right here, it's, it's significant. It's mentioned twice more, just in the, in the, in the next couple paragraphs, uh, that, that follow. And again, this indicates the closeness of Jesus, Jesus and Judas. He, you know, he was close enough to hand this to him even. It's quite possible that Judas was seated in the other place of honor, right at Jesus's other side. It's also, of course, a callback to that prophecy from Psalms about he who ate my bread, literally ate the bread that Jesus handed to him, has lifted up his heel against me. This is something, I mean, you really can't miss the symbolism of this right here. Here is Jesus, the bread of life. The bread of heaven, he called himself. I am the bread of life. Offering himself to Judas. And Judas, instead of embracing this gift, takes the bread and opens his heart to something else entirely. Verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That word for entered into is a term of possession. It's that same word um, that we see in Mark's gospel where the, the um, demons enter into the herd of swine, take control of them and drive them into the, into the sea. And right here in this brief, horrifying sentence, 
we see the most powerful of all demons, the, the serpent of, of Eden, the one whom Jesus calls the prince of this world in the very next chapter. Satan himself takes possession of Judas. It's hard to imagine a darker sentence that could be written into someone's biography. Satan entered into him. It's hard to imagine a worse fate that that could befall you, to be consumed by the true dark Lord, to to be found in the grip of evil personified, to be filled not with the Holy Spirit, but with the spirit of Satan. This is what happens to Judas right here. This is why this scene is so disturbing. Judas has been walking in in darkness for quite some time, John makes clear in the story. But right now, at this moment, Judas is consumed by it. Really, as we've been reading through the Gospel of John, this opposition of Satan to the work of Jesus, it's kind of been a subtext behind everything that's been going on. In the other gospels, it's a lot more explicit because in the other three gospels, you have Jesus doing a lot of exorcisms. You have Jesus going around casting out demons from a lot. We don't see that in John's gospel. Satan is much more in the background of John's telling of things. We don't have the temptation of Jesus in, in John's gospel like we do in the other ones, but that does not mean that Satan is any more less active in his pursuit of, of Jesus's downfall, particularly here as Jesus approaches the cross. Now, obviously, there is some irony in this as well, because as John's readers, uh, we know that Satan's um, possession of Judas that's going to lead to his betrayal and, and, and send Jesus to the cross is ironically what's going to deliver Satan his fatal blow. This is what's going to lead to his downfall, the crumbling of his kingdom. And, you know, I was, I was talking about this last week with, um, with Bruce and Randy. Like, what is Satan's goal here? Shouldn't Satan be wanting to keep Jesus away from the cross at, at, at all costs? I mean, that seems to be what we see uh, in the temptation of Jesus. He's trying to prevent him from going to, cross, to the cross, to seek another path to glory that does not involve submission to God's plan. We also see this in Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying in agony, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Yet here, in the providence of God, Satan is used to bring about his own destruction. There's a lot of mystery here. We could speculate for a long time, what Satan is trying to do, what Judas is trying to do psychologically, but ultimately it comes down to God wanted Jesus to go to the cross. He's going to use whatever means he has to to get him there. Even though Satan is clearly a driver behind Judas's answer, I mean, actions, it's also, this also gets back to that question of why would one of his own 12 betray him? Well, clearly there was a satanic influence involved. This was not... Um, just Judas all on his own. But that does not absolve Judas at all for the responsibility for his actions. Verse 27 continues. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he immediately, morsel of bread, He immediately went out, that was Judas, and it was night. 
there are two notes of warning in this for us. The first is that no one but Jesus saw this coming. No one. This shows, again, that Jesus' previous words about the, the, the bread being the indicator of who the betrayer is, those, they were probably said very quietly, loud enough so only John and John alone heard them. This also shows that when Satan took possession of Judas, there was no outward change. You know, you've, maybe you've seen some uh, movies or whatever that uh, show demonic possession with a lot of really flashy things and stuff. Well, there's no indication of that here. That's chilling. Judas looked exactly as he always looked. Yet he was possessed by Satan. Satan had entered into him. Because apparently everybody here heard what Jesus said to Judas, this, you know, what you are going to do, go do quickly. But no one had any clue what that meant. Like, like John says, they thought maybe they're, hey, Judas, he's sending him out to go buy some groceries, some other stuff we need for the ensuing festivities the, the next few days. Or he's sending him out to give money to the poor, which was a Passover custom. You give alms to the poor, he's saying, oh, you know, Judas, you've got the money box, why don't you go give some money to the poor and we'll fulfill this Passover custom. And John points out this detail right here just to underscore again how blindsided all of these disciples were by Judas's betrayal. You know, I know that we tend to picture Judas as like this sinister, shadowy uh, disciple that was always kind of slinking around in the shadows, always, you know, really looking evil. Maybe you've seen some of the pictures where they have the 12 disciples and Judas is always, I mean, he's like clearly the, the snidely whiplash of, of the 12. That is not uh, the biblical portrait we have of Judas. I mean, for all we know, Judas was probably good looking, affable. He's a guy, you know, the, the, the disciples like. They trusted him. He was the, the keeper of, of, of the money box, a big position of trust. He was, he was competent. He was a follower. He was useful uh, in ministry. The other gospels make it clear that all 12 of these disciples were given authority by Jesus to cast out demons, do miracles, proclaim the message of the kingdom from village to village. Jesus did all, I mean, Judas did all this, presumably. He did great works of ministry, but all along, Jesus, Judas never truly belonged to Jesus. This, this story of Judas, it is really a, a chilling warning to anyone who might presume that ministry effectiveness is a seal of salvation certainty. God can use anyone he wants to accomplish his work, even unbelievers. There will be effective evangelists who end up in hell. There, there will be well-respected pastors and deacons who end up in hell. There will be those who say, Lord, Lord, did we not do great works in your name did, and cast out demons in your name? And the Lord will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The story of Judas is a call to self-examination. For each of us who considers ourselves followers of Jesus, to look not just at our external fruit, to you know how much ministry we do, how much, how much good we do in the world, how much we know about Jesus, but to look at our hearts and answer, really just hard look and ask the question, is it I, Lord? Is it I? This is the question that the, the disciples ask out loud in the other gospel accounts. Is it I? Am I the one who will betray you? And that's the question John is leading his readers, us, to ask right here. Hear the warning of Jesus, and, and as Paul puts it, examine yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. Second note of warning for all of us, which is to never underestimate 
the, the hardness of the human heart and the stubborn persistence of unbelief despite all the evidence in the world. It's tempting to believe that trusting Jesus is a purely rational exercise, that if we could just, you know, show our neighbors all the right evidence, hit them with all the right arguments, then they absolutely would come to faith in Jesus. That is not the case. There are other factors at play. I mean, Judas right here, he walked with Jesus for three years. He heard every word from his mouth, the best arguments, the best teaching from the source of truth with a capital T himself. He saw every miracle. He preached the gospel himself, going from village to village, sharing the message of the kingdom. Yet all along, Judas was lost. He was a son of perdition. He was dwelling in darkness. Look at, look at the final four words of this scene. And it was night. And it was night. That's the note that John ends on here, these four really brief words that are just dripping with symbolism, and it was night. All along in John's gospel, these images of, of light and of, 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 of darkness have been used to indicate two kingdoms, uh, one of which every human being is a part, the kingdom of Jesus, which is the kingdom of light, or the kingdom of this world, which is the kingdom of darkness. I am the light of the world, Jesus cries out earlier in the gospel. You know, whoever follows me, they will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Judas rejected this offer. Judas walks out of the presence of Jesus right here. He walks out of this room that is glowing with the light of the world. And he walks into the outer darkness. And it was night. If you are half-hearted right now in your pursuit of Jesus, if, if you are toying with darkness, if you've heard the gospel 10,000 times, probably could repeat it in your sleep, but have never really embraced it, if you've been on mission trip, taught Sunday school, served on the, the, the worship team, but you know in your heart of hearts that you are holding back from truly giving Jesus all of yourself without reservations, this story right here is your warning. It's maybe your last warning. Do not trifle with darkness. If you do, there will come a point where you walk away from Jesus for the last time, where he lets you depart into the night. Look at Judas and take warning. The final function of this story, the one I'd like us to end on, wonder. John wants us to wonder in amazement, in sorrow, as we consider the fact that Jesus was betrayed for you. It's very easy, you know, when we think of the sacrifice of Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, to think of all this simply in terms of the cross, right? The, the nails, the whip, just the, the trauma and the violence of Roman crucifixion. But there's more than that. Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus was betrayed for you. 
None of us right here has ever experienced the agony of crucifixion. But almost all of us here has experienced the agony of betrayal. Many of us are left with wounds that linger to this day inside of us. Jesus knows that pain. Jesus has felt that pain of betrayal. Verse 21, after saying these things, John writes, that would be these things about his betrayal. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Troubled. I mean, that is a very light way to translate that, that verb right there. Stirred up. Uh, churned up inside would be a better way to put it. Grieved. This is the verb that's used when Jesus stands beside the tomb of his friend Lazarus and he's weeping. At what? Right here, it's the prospect of his betrayal. The, the agony that is felt when one of your friends, one of the 12, is then handing him over to be killed. Jesus went through that, that agony of betrayal for you. You do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with your weaknesses, but one who is tested in every way that you are without sin. John wants us to see Jesus' pain here. He wants us to, to see his agony, this sorrow on the night in which he was betrayed, and to marvel at it, to, to, just, to just wonder at the depths to which Jesus would condescend for me, to redeem me. Because we cannot really look at this story without recognizing that at some level, every single one of us here is a Judas. This whole story of humanity, really, is one of betrayal. This is, uh, it's, it's a story of human beings turning their back on the God who made them. This is the story that we read uh, in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God creates humans. He gives them everything they need for life and for happiness. And what do they do? They betray him. They seek their own godhood. They seek their own power. They turn their backs on their God. Then later, God calls out a people, the nation of Israel, sets them free from slavery. And what's being celebrated at this very dinner in the, in the Feast of Passover, he gives them a hope. He gives them a name. And what does this people do? They betray him. They seek after idols instead of seeking after their God. They seek their own glory instead of his honor. And then this same tragic story of betrayal it's told in the life of every individual sinner. It's told in your life. It's told in my life. That we have spurned our God. We have rejected him. God gives. We want to take. God offers. We reject. God loves. We spurn him. Each of us in our sin, in our rebellion, we have betrayed our God. Yet here, in Jesus, God the Son is betrayed for us. God the Son is betrayed so that traitors can have life. His life given to us as a gift. This is what we need to see in this story. This is what we need to look at and wonder and worship because Jesus was betrayed for you. Pray with me, please, and then we'll worship together. Father, we can't help but see, feel sorrow when we look at the sacrifice of your son. We also cannot feel anything but enormous gratitude. The, the weight of what you have done to us, done for us through Jesus, I pray that you would please help us to return that weight in worship. 
and, and rejoicing and, and glorifying you for your great work of redemption through Jesus, who is our only hope, the only hope for the traitors. Thank you for his faithfulness by which we are cleansed. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.